the actual start of the story I was in the middle of a run of four night shifts mm-hmm. on the second last night shift I was like oh my stomach doesn't feel quite right I've got quite a bit of pain but that happened so I just stopped eating tried to sleep through it went to the next night shift I told all the doctors on my night shift guys I've got an abdominal migraine feel a bit nauseated but yep. we'll be okay Worked the night shift completely fine. Got home, just had one piece of toast and then just the worst, obviously worst abdominal pain I've ever had in my life. And then started vomiting at home. And I was sort of trying to wait it out because the last thing a doctor wants to do is go to hospital, especially one where they work for a few years and know everyone. So pushed it to probably the absolute limit I could, tried everything at home. So I was prepared that when the triage nurse asked me, yes, I've had Panadol, yes, I'm having Nurofen, yes, I've tried Mastopan at home. Because you don't want to hear about these patients that haven't tried anything because they're masking the pain. (laughs) (laughs) But there's something left to hold on to. We can work it through, you don't have. Welcome to the ED. There's a future here with me. We'll find the light in a clouded room. Not giving up until you know. Alright, you picked it. Yes, it's Nikki. Nikki brought bronchiolitis to the EDGM podcast. On this episode, Nikki's unpacking when she as a doctor became a patient. We're going to listen to her story. Um, It's really interesting. Um, We're going to discuss some themes um, in relation to bowel obstructions. And we're going to hear from a surgical registrar as well about bowel obstructions. Um, A bit of the pathophysiology of bowel obstructions. A bit of the physiology. A bit of the management and treatment and emergency for bowel obstructions. Some contentious topics as well. Um, And then we're going to also discuss a little bit about um, these abdominal pain and bowel obstructions, especially presentations with females, um, as we do get common presentations, as well about not judging our patients um, and not putting them in a box, um, which is so easy to do sometimes, is to look at patients um, and you know judge them or have you know preconceived ideas about the patient. Um, as clinicians, we've got to have a non-biased approach um, and treat all our patients with respect. Um, I think you're going to like it. Let's keep going and listening to Nikki's story. You. Um, and then I came into our local hospital and everyone there was amazing. So if they're listening, it was a um, good experience on that side. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to fast forward things, abdominal uh, pain, all of that night, um, I've had a NG inserted, which I can wow. just sympathize to everyone that we put NGs in is just the worst. My first NG in emergency, I think took seven attempts and there was Holy a They're awful. They're awful, awful, awful. Um, anyway, I was in severe abdominal pain, vomiting all night, had all the scans. The CT scan was initially inconclusive. And then uh, when you saw me, I was on a ketamine infusion in recess. Correct, yep. 
Um, and then that just sort of, the pain just kept going. Nothing would mm. relieve it. Um, and then the surgeon came in the next morning and saw me and I had had a rapid response as soon as he came in. Mm-hmm. And then because of increasing pain and tachycardia. But the, so in emergency, I had completely normal bloods other than a bit of tachycardia. All my observations were fine. Yep. Pelvic ultrasound was fine. And then the surgeon came in that next morning, saw me, looked at the CT scan himself and said, there's definitely a bowel obstruction there. Let's now jump over to Mark Macaranis, uh, surgical registrar, um, who's going to run us through bowel obstructions. And we'll crack back into Nikki's story in just a moment. Yeah, well, so um, I always say this to everyone. Yeah, surgery is very logical and simple. Yep. The good thing when you say bowel obstruction, it's basically an obstruction in the bowel. Um, <laughs> the only thing is, you know, um, there's a lot of, for me, especially at night shift, there's two things that I really want to know mm-hmm. uh, when someone calls me. Oh, someone has bowel obstruction. Is it the small bowel or the large bowel? Okay. That will make your decision making different. And mm-hmm. obviously your differential is different. Okay. So in, you know, in a simple term, bowel obstruction is anything that obstructs the bowel, be it the large or small bowel. Okay. Good. I like it. Very simple. Patients need simple stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> what are the common causes of bowel obstructions? So small or large bowel? Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, the good thing with the bowel obstruction, um, the basic management of them are basically the same. Um, but uh, common stuff, especially in what they say, the Western world or, you know, yeah. um, uh, they usually say it's adhesions first. Mm-hmm. Uh, so adhesions are what we call uh, the scar tissues after an operation so that's the most common cause that we that we see as a surgical registrar in the hospital um obviously as i said um you can um basically group them into a couple of groups of these causes so you can say so adhesions is something that happens outside of the bowel basically so it's outside the bowel Mm -hmm. so any adhesions um if uh bowel goes into hernia yeah. So that can uh, cause some obstruction as well. So yep. bowel, uh, that can cause a bowel obstruction as well. Um, so that's anything that's outside the bowel. Um, inside the bowel, so you would think of anything that can obstruct or um, cause a blockage from inside. Okay. So the one of the things, one of the things that me as a surgical registrar was very there is uh, one of my very interesting cases was a bowel obstruction caused by a very big gallstones. Eh, so really? Because of the gallstone. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it uh, it basically caused a small bowel obstruction. Wow. Um, so that's within the bowel. So anything that can obstruct, yep. I always tell it's like a tube. Anything that obstructs it from inside the tube can cause anything. So that's within the bowel. So anything gallstones and we, we say you know food boluses can do that yeah um, in um at, uh, in just the developing countries parasites can cause it okay. like ascaris if you have a bowl of parasites that can cause a bowel obstruction um and um and the other thing now is whatever is within the bowel wall so any cancers tumors primary okay. cancer lymphomas uh, that can cause an obstruction as well good i like the inside and outside it's like, yeah, 
got a hose and you've got it, you can have it kinked from the outside or you can have it blocked from the inside. Blocked from the inside. That's right. Yeah. That's uh, that's the most simplest way how to put it actually. Yeah. I like it. It's so good. Those are the things that run to our minds when you, when you, when someone calls us for a bowel obstruction. Yeah, that's good. I like it. Um, and I guess what what are some facts about the bowel that some people don't know, or facts about the bowel that you go, you know, <laughs> how long is yeah, well, some things that are interesting about it? Yeah, the only thing I can really think of is you know, um, like pearls is a. As long as you have 1.2 meters of small bubble, you can live. <laughs> this is from one of my professors. So we can cut off the rest of it as long as my, yeah, 1.2 meters. <laughs> <It's gold. laughs> yeah. So I more live with that. Uh, 1.2 meters, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. Um, That's cool. I like it. Yeah, in the in the sense for uh, for our patients, uh, I guess especially with small, if it's a small bowel obstruction. So yes. those are the things that you, they might want to know uh, yeah. because uh, when we open the topic of we might need to operate on you, mm-hmm. uh, those are the top, th- those are the questions, you know, those questions that actually get me sometimes. Oh, how, how, how long is the bowel? Well, it's three meters. We can always just leave 1.2 meters and you should be okay. Me and Mark. You know, we're joking, sort of saying, what do you buy a surgeon for Christmas? You know, a 1.2 meter ruler. Um, but in all seriousness, um, surgeons do have a job to do. Um, and they don't make, they make decisions um, in context of the patient's condition. Um, and they make, don't make decisions lightly either. Um, so it's really important to understand um, that in all the jokingness and all the laughing around, um, surgery is a serious job and it's not just about cutting. We're taking to surgery in the next 10 minutes. Wow. <laughs> so I just called my other half and said, this is happening. <laughs> and then oh. I'll speak to you when I speak to you. Um, and then he said to me, if it's open, so if it's a laparotomy, you'll have to go to ICU afterwards. Mm-hmm. Which I was like, please, just please, laparoscopic, please, laparoscopic, like just do this keyhole. And then the worst case was the sort of a colostomy bag and open. Mm-hmm. Um, but so what ended up what they found in surgery was that my the cecum yep. the start of my large intestine was actually up in my left upper quadrant so it had gone completely Whoa. on itself it's um and so yeah complete twist on itself so that was the main cause of the pain and then and it was just long and flapping in the breeze even when they undid it it's just like my connective tissue is not adhering it to the position it's meant to be wow so they stitched that back down took the appendix out and then my small bowel had a sort of huge abnormality in the middle of it like this big distended area that turns out it's a very unusual meckles diverticulum okay the meckles we see in kids is all out pouching their small bowel that sometimes cause a bowel obstruction that we mistake for appendicitis. Mm-hmm. But they took that out, it was about 10 centimetres small bowel, um, and stitched that back together. But it had to be done as a laparotomy, so obviously ICU. Um, So well, 
but I can tell that it's changing. I know when you lie there still that you've just been. What does the bowel do pathologically? So what is I mean, we know that it transports food, obviously, down to the, you know, to the colon rectal into the stomach. But what are some things that the bowel actually does? Well, what the bowel, what the bowel does is it basically just uh, uh, gets those nutrients, vitamins, minerals, yep. whatever, um, uh, get digested. Yep. And when we digest it, that's where it actually tries to... Um, be broken down to molecules that can actually be digested and used by the body. Yep. Uh, and we, wherever the, in the small bowel, it has specific areas where you get like the vitamin K, where you get that, um, where you have your vitamin B12, where, where it actually gets uh, absorbed. So there are areas, specific areas in that small bowel uh, that obviously we don't, we try not to resect or cut. <laughs> um, but uh, if you know, it, it, it will only always depends on what is in front of you, basically. Yes. Yeah. What, what type of obstruction it actually is, and then what yeah. how you can treat it, and what we need to do to get rid of it. Are bowel obstructions more common in certain, um, you know, anatomical spaces, like do you, do you, like in any part of the ah, right. bowel? Yeah. Yeah. Not, not really. Uh, I can't really say that it, it's more on the duodenum or jejunum. As you know, small bowel. There's yep. three. There's three areas, the duodenum, jejunum, and allium. Yeah. Uh, we don't really know um, because when we do operate on them, it's just adhesions where the adhesions are. And usually it's in the mid small bowel. So it's around, usually around the jejunum, which is probably, I would say, would be uh, where the adhesions form more. Uh, that's where the spaces are. You know, um, Duodenum is mostly very much plastered uh, some of them as we know is retroperitoneal so that yep. decreases i think the risk of that mm -hmm. um, being um, uh, forming a bowel obstruction uh, from adhesions anyway um, and i think that's the reason for that uh, so I I, if you ask me where i see more of the obstruction yeah. i can't really say uh, but as i said it would probably be around the judgment because that's where all the adhesions usually form yeah okay and those you said those adhesions can be formed from scar tissue. Yes, scar tissue from um, you know from surgery. Surgery. Uh, yeah. So any surgeries, um, any kinds of surgery, intra abdominally, of of course. So anything from a previous appendectomy, appendectomy, sorry, um, and any previous you know a bowel uh, resection for cancer or for whatever reason, some benign problems. Mm -hmm. uh, that's why it's very important uh, that we ask in the history. Yeah. So any what, what um, clinical history do you like to ask your patients? So if Mark's been called down to ED, yeah. I've got this patient that I'm concerned they've got a bowel obstruction. Obstruction, um, yeah. You're probably going to get a clinical history. What things does Mark ask as a, as a surgery? Yeah. So I usually always go for, you know, from the start. So the history, why yeah. they presented how long is very important for me because if this patient comes in very acutely, mm -hmm. then at least you would think, huh, maybe uh, um, you have to now make sure that the patient is actually not vomiting too much, any electrolyte imbalances that we need to correct before anything. So those things are very much so history-wise, how acute, uh, well, basically how, what are the first symptoms? Mm -hmm. Is it abdominal pain? Is it distension? 
Is it vomiting, nausea? So th- those things precede each other. And mm-hmm. I would, if it's if it's more of a bowel dis- abdominal distension rather than pain mm-hmm. uh, with just nausea, I would actually be linked going towards more of a, this might be a, a large bowel obstruction, okay. which is my experience anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, if they start with vomiting, first incessant vomiting, you might think, that, oh, probably an obstruction. And the thing is, the obstruction might be a bit proximal, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, a bit more high in that small bowel. Yeah. And I think that's why she's he's vomiting. So that's one thing. Um, so history uh, mm-hmm. of their... Uh, condition um, and then you know the ancillary any fever um, uh, any fevers um, any you know did you feel your heart racing chest pain shortness of breath all of those things because now if you're saying that the patient's been vomiting you have to be considering about the that you know complication of that vomiting which is yeah. you know, aspiration pneumonia or anything like that uh, so that's for your history. Uh, part of the history would now be your past medical history, which yep. now the most important thing is previous operation. Yes. Uh, very important. Uh, because if you tell me that she's, he's had previous operation, well, it probably is bowel obstruction. <laughs> and uh, and uh, this is probably from adhesions. Yep. Uh, but if you tell me that, oh, patient doesn't have had any operations no mm. that's certainly something that we need to figure out what's causing the obstruction yeah. um and that will guide you towards uh, uh what's next for this patient mm. okay so obviously past medical history um and of the ancillary past medical history would be you know any other uh comorbidities that this patient have yeah okay. um and then um then go now to how house the patient at the moment yeah you know, yeah vital signs and everything that's very important um and then that's the time when i go oh well and then you examine your patient yeah. after that it's very what important. do you look at when you're examining your patient mark so in your yeah. looking, sometimes patients don't give you the best history oh i think i I don't know if I've got one. Uh, <laughs> and we, we very well know there's a few of them. <laughs> have you had percent of them? <laughs> I've got my appendix, I've got my gall buddy, you're looking down, you're looking at some scars across the abdomen, you're like, okay, what are these from? Yeah. Oh, actually, you know. Yeah, oh, yeah, I remember now. <laughs> yeah, so how do you approach that when you're examining? What are you looking for? The magic surgeon hands, you know, the warm. The- yeah, I, I, I don't know why everyone. <laughs> Everyone has this thing about, oh, yeah, you might be able to diagnose it just by laying your hands on that. But, you know, <laughs> um, um, uh, so, yeah, when you see a patient, obviously, you all, we all, we're always been taught, you know, you go from the basics, from looking at the vital signs, looking at the patient from end of the bed. Yes, yeah. the patient sick, toxic, mm-hmm. um, being tachycardic um, and febrile is one thing that we don't like. For yeah. a patient that you're concerned of a bowel obstruction, mm-hmm. it can mean that you know um, it's either his she's septic from peritonitis uh, caused by the bowel obstruction, or you know she's probably been vomiting and has had uh, uh, forming a pneumonia already, aspiration pneumonia. So those things are what we don't like. So any tachycardia, any fever, be uh, mm-hmm. Um After that, when you see the patients. Um, uh, we go straight. Well, I 
as surgical registrars, we used to, you know, nutritional status, how, how he, she looks, mm. uh, any jaundice, anything like that. But on the abdomen, um, you have to have a look at, is it really distended? Yeah. Uh, is it normal for this patient? That's the most important thing. And um, how the patient is tender. And we always use as medical students and nurses, you know, I mean, um, the four quadrants of the abdomen will just give you um, an idea of what's wrong. But with bowel obstruction, as you know, it's basically they say, oh, pain is all over. And as with abdominal pain, uh, oh, as with bowel pain, they, they only, only will... Uh, say that it's painful when the bowel actually is distended. Okay. So those are the only times that when patients say, oh, my, I have pain because your bowel is starting to distend, which is caused by the obstruction. Mm -hmm. The other thing that they might say that it's painful is when, you know, it's either it's already perforated and you have peritonitis. Okay. So those things. So it's very important to now feel the tummy. Now, mm -hmm. if it's soft, you know, soft meaning you can still press it uh, comfortably, Patient might be saying, oh, it's it's painful, but you know, it's soft. It's not like tender where they actually are trying to guard it, trying to, you know, not let you touch it um, by contracting their uh, abdominal muscles, then I'm still all right, you know, if it's soft. But if they start contracting their, their abdominal muscles, um, and they we always use the consistency board-like uh, consistency then yep. you have to be concerned of you know uh, peritonitis uh, mm. forming mm. so th those are the things that you look for and obviously you know um, any scars any scars any lumps any hernias so those are the things that's why it's very important it's always a medical uh, school question uh, how's the testicle <laughs> so everyone would say, why would you look at the testicle for a bowel obstruction? Well, a hernia can cause bowel obstruction. That's why it's very important. And at the end of this, um, the end of it usually is you have to do a PR as well. Yeah. Um, I have had, a, it, well, uh, it's not the cause of that patient's bowel obstruction, but I was able to actually feel a mass uh, when I did a PR. So mm -hmm. something to think of uh, as well. Yeah, it's, it's holistically looking at our patients, not just fixing on one certain diagnosis because you can have multiple diagnoses with one pathology. You know, you could have your yeah, bowel, that's right. you have multiple, I don't know, some sort of mass as cancer. And so there's something else yeah. going on, you know, bowel yeah. plus our yeah. finding. So that's, that's right. And uh, I always would want to think, you know, we all, with surgery, we, only, we always think of one cause but with that one cause, has it actually resulted to other issues that yes. you need to actually sort out first before doing anything else? Yeah. Well, we, we, um, and I've seen um, multiple diagnoses, even with cardiac arrest, having like the patient had like, you know, hyperkalemia with, um, with an ischemic gut. Um, mm. very interesting. Yeah. Uh, was it the cause of the hyperkalemia? Was it the oh. cause of the ischemic gut? You know, so very interesting pathology. Um, That's right. Cool. Um, so you assess your patient. Um, as you said before, looking for those signs of like peritonitis, mm. looking for those signs of sepsis in relation to tachycardia, hypotension, um, fever, tachypnea. Um, mm. What are some of the, uh, um, so you've done all that. What are some of the um, common misdiagnosis with bowel obstructions or some of the oh, things well, yeah. that could not be or could be that's not a bowel obstruction? Yeah. So it's always uh, with the bowel obstruction, it's always... Uh, 
there's always that differential diagnosis. Is it a pseudo obstruction? So as we know, pseudo obstruction is just basically distension of the small bowel and large bowel, and we don't know what's causing it. Now with the pseudo obstruction, it could be, you know, that's mainly sometimes medication, um, comorbidities. Uh, we see this often with uh, aged care population where they're less mobile, they're bed bound, you know, um, in nursing homes. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one thing. Uh, the other one, obviously, is uh, when we have a bowel, well, query a bowel obstruction is um, sometimes it might be gastroenteritis. Uh, they Because they actually fail to say, oh, abdominal pain, vomiting, and then someone doesn't actually, ah, have you been opening your bowels? <laughs> ah, right. yeah, I've been opening my bowels for like five days, uh, five times, uh, from you know from midnight and watery so that's also always a always a thing to actually uh consider yes. um can you have a bowel obstruction and be opening your bowels um if drink. it's acutely yeah. you know uh because obviously um a bowel obstruction will uh usually be on one certain point in the bowel and that probably happened quite acutely and yep. obviously anything that has passed that before it happens it will still open their bowels your peristalsis uh, will go down yeah yeah so um so if if this patient is very conscious about her pain and everything and sometimes when they actually know about their bowels from this patient who has had uh previous attacks yep. they know that it's coming but uh, when you ask them so sometimes they present like in the afternoon, when you when was the last time you opened your bowels? They might say, "Oh, in the morning." Yeah, had that. So you know, oh well. The thing now, the next thing you have to ask is, is she passing wind? Yes. Because uh, the peristalsis now, um, anything that's obstructed mm. would probably be lazy to move. So the peristalsis movement will. That's why you don't listen when you listen to the tummy with a bowel obstruction. It just is quiet okay. because the bowel just stops. So do you normally do that in bowel obstructions? Have a listen to the tummy. Sometimes <laughs> when, when, when it's something you always have to, okay. I mean, um, in, in exam questions and, you know, yes. you always have, to. um, uh, you always have to, uh, listen to the abdomen, uh, make sure that, you know, if there's, and there's this, is it tinkling is, yeah. you know, at, to be honest, there's nothing, uh, there's no hard and fast rule of how much bowel sounds should be. Yeah. It, yep. could, it could range from five to 35. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. It's, it's different when you're getting called down for someone who's got a confirmed bowel obstruction to someone who doesn't have a bowel obstruction and you're coming to see. Like, yeah. you know, so you have to, you know, when, when you have those differential diagnoses of, uh, is it enteritis, is it a gastroenteritis, or yeah. is it a pseudo obstruction? But the patient just doesn't, you know, uh, look like a bowel obstruction that yeah. you're actually thinking of different. It's very good to just do, do your complete physical examination. It's actually really cool talking to Mark. He's almost got this infectious like giggle about him when he laughs and talks. Um, and people that know him know he's an exceptional human. Um, so often Surge Regs, you know, people don't remember their name. They're like, oh, Paige's a Surge Reg. And it's just, it almost just seems almost we lose the sense of humaneness with some of the doctors. Um, surgery is a really cutthroat industry um, 
And we know that anecdotally by looking at what surgeons go through. Um, there's interesting cultures amongst surgeons. Um, there's interesting things that occur. Um, even when I worked um, as part of a trauma team once, I helped one of the surgery edges actually claim overtime. Um, and by the time we'd finished, uh, he was almost able to purchase a car. And you know, there's a culture almost like, oh, you're expected as a surgery edge to stay back. Like you're expected as a surgery edge to do, you know, triple nights. You're expected as a surgery edge to do this and do that. Um, and Mark's one of those people that's been doing this for over 10 years um, because he loves surgery. He, he says to me, you know, there's nothing else I'd rather do uh, than be um, than, than wanted to become a surgeon, a general surgeon. Um, so you can sort of see that heart, that when someone falls in love with, with a job, it's almost a part of them. It's almost a part of who they are as a person. Um, and Mark, as well, when he comes down, he genuinely... You know, I used to, when I worked in the trauma team, he would, he would stay back after doing a whole night shift and he would just hand over to us um, out of respect because he knew that in the morning um, all of us nurses would be going to see the patients that had come in overnight, the trauma patients. Uh, and he'd give us a comprehensive hand over the patients and tell us which patients he was concerned with, which patients he'd like us to review. Um, and I love that about him. Um, he treats all people the same. Um, and he's just a really cool guy. Um, we're going to crack back in and listen to Nikki now um, as she tells the rest of us about her story with a bowel obstruction. And then we thought we were getting better. So each yep. day, nice. You know, I was trying to stand each day, walk a few steps each day, have some clear fluids. Spent like four nights in ICU. And then I was ready to be discharged to the ward. Gonna be going to the ward. Got on the ward. <laughs> it lasted 20 hours. I had fevers, rigors. I know what real rigors are now as an adult. Yes, not. <laughs> oh. Um, mm. And then repeat blood work showed my CRP was 420. 420. Um, okay. 420. Yeah. So. Um, was either going to be the chest because I was lying in bed for so long or coming from my abdomen. Yep. So surgeon figured what's the worst thing it can be coming from your abdomen. Correct. Oh, and I also had a, I forgot about that bit. I had a blood loss during my first time in ICU. So my hemoglobin went to 60 when I was in ICU and needed two blood transfusions. Far oh, yeah. out. Um, and another CT scan, but they couldn't work out where that was coming from. But then when I had all these fevers on the ward, they had to open the same wound back up. So I went back into surgery again, sort of had a 10 minute warning, back to theatres, same wound opened back up, start from scratch again. Another five nights in ICU, of two nights of absolute hell, vomiting mm. again and another NG. And eventually I got back to the ward and then spent another three or four nights on the ward and got home. But, um, wow. Yes, a journey. <laughs> so there's a lot to unpack on that. I guess, you know, what was your headspace going like? You come into ED, you're in excruciating abdominal pain. Um, you're needing an NG tube. What did you think was going on in your head? In my head, I thought it had to be a bowel obstruction because yep. wasn't, in appendix territory. Yep. And I had had an episode three years prior when I lived yep. in Melbourne, mm. or four years prior when I lived in Melbourne, and they didn't do a CT scan at that point in time, but it just had the same symptoms of a 
abdominal pain and vomiting and sort of resolved with gut rest. Mm -hmm. And so I thought this felt better with gut rest. Every time I eat something, it gets worse. It has to be bowel obstruction. But why would someone that's never had surgery before, no past medical history, have a bowel obstruction? So I wasn't offering that up as walking and being like, I think I've got a bowel obstruction. Yeah. But when you're in that much pain, when you're that sick, which I think is a lesson, is that you don't think clearly. You don't really think like that. You sort of just let yourself go to the system and yeah. think, help me, I'm just going to lie here and vomit because yeah. there's nothing else I can do. Right. You, um, and I'm assuming the initial CT you got because there was a delay was reported that you don't have a bowel obstruction. Okay. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Well, so, one of the consultants, when yeah. I was in the scanner and he was watching it happen at the time, yeah. came straight over to me and said, I think you've got a volvulus. Yeah. And that's the problem. But then when the formal report came through, it said that there was nothing there and the consultant at that time had gone home because it was after midnight. Yeah. Um, so I think that complicated... The situation, yeah. yeah. But um, but in the same time, I think the outcome would have been the same. The surgeon right. would come in the next day yeah. for the surgery. Yeah, and I guess it's like anything, like mistakes from a report to mistakes from a diagnosis of diagnosing someone with, I don't know, uh, you know, a pulled elbow and it ends up being a fracture or something. Um, it's we can all make mistakes. Hey, we're all human. Um, even report a report can be incorrect. I think that's the lesson, right? Always look at the scan yourself. And the consultant did look at the scan. Yes. Himself. Um, handover of shift, making information sure it's clear. Yep. Um, but luckily the person, the reg that was on overnight just called the consultant halfway through the night. I mean, that's why you have the beauty of es being able to escalate mm. as a reg and chat to someone else about it. Um, because she was concerned that nothing was making it better. Wow. Um, so got there in the end. Yeah. And I guess the interesting thing is this is height of COVID. So you're not, you're not even getting like anyone coming to see you. You've got like family. This is, you've dropped your HB in intensive care. What you make a phone call to family. That's all you really can get. Yeah. That was interesting. And like, that's a really important lesson as well for, going back to work now and how hard it is. I think it's actually harder for, in my situation, I found it harder for my family than it was for me. Okay. Only my family's medical as well, which I think makes a difference. Whereas I'm sitting in ICU and they come and tell me my hemoglobin's 60. I sort of mm. know what the next steps are going to be and that that's relatively treatable in the worst case of going back in for surgery. Yeah. But to call your partner and say, I'm getting a blood transfusion now. I'm getting a CT scan to make sure I'm not bleeding out from the inside. Um, was difficult. And then trying to, that chain of communication to go from one person to then tell the rest of the family. Yeah. And then to tell my friends um, was hard. It was hard. Were you worried, Nikki? Everyone's asked this and I think not really. Okay. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> You don't have to be. Everyone else around me was really worried. They were, but I think yeah. maybe I was 
too sick. Most of the time I was on, actually, this might be the answer. Here we go. Most of the time I was on fentanyl or ketamine. Oh, there we go. So, so the, you know, being scared actually you got no impact with ketamine. So that was probably the, you know, the nystagmus. Oh, yeah. The, <laughs> I didn't know what was happening. That's why I was <laughs> Did a Smurf visit me or was that the doctor telling me that it's a life-threatening problem? I don't know, but. Bloody hell. <laughs> okay. And that's, yeah. I guess that's an interesting point. So that's huge. Like, you know, you know, you're a keen surfer. Most of the time you're laying down surfing and your tummy's been ripped open. You've had your bowel, your appendix out, your bowel resected, um, 10 centimeters of it gone. And was there a thought that you'll get a, a colostomy bag or get some sort of bag in your head? Yes. And that was probably, and I feel a bit guilty that being like, this is the worst case for me or this is the outcome I don't want because people live with colostomy bags and have a perfectly normal, happy life. But, and I suppose it's the same reason I didn't want it to be open because I knew from patients I've seen what the recovery means and what that means for getting back into the ocean and getting back into work and how how much more difficult that's going to be. Um, and I remember after the first surgery, I said to this, I was lying in bed back in ICU and I said to the surgeon, how long until I can surf again? <laughs> and he said, oh, maybe six weeks. And that's just such a joke now because little did I know I'd have all the complications, go in for another surgery, yep. have all the muscle wasting and it would actually be closer to two months before I could even just go for a surgery. <laughs> yeah and for i don't know like for ocean people out there i'm a lover of the ocean and the, you know i mean i know you're the same that's a long time to be out of the water um yeah you know it's a long and time like you, you think that after a stressful week all you want to do is just get in the ocean it like yeah. washes away all the stress everything 100%. um it's so cleansing and then to just not even be able to go. We can't. I like. I couldn't even walk on sand for a month because that was too much energy to just walk on sand. So wow. What has it made you appreciate? Do you think? Like, what what has it taught you? Like, you know, I guess you have a big life. I don't know. We could say it's life changing, but definitely something that's bumped you out of the road. Like, when you're in the medical field, you've got a few things that are in your path to achieve, and then suddenly you have this moment where you're like. Hang on, I got four. More, I got another night shift to do. You know what I mean? Like, you know, how does that? How does it change you? Do you think, or what has it made you appreciate? Small goals and small wins. Okay. So I think it puts in, it's just sitting inside. I mean, people in hotel quarantine are doing this, but sitting yep. inside for two weeks, not seeing anyone you know or love, not having sunshine on your face, like those tiny goals just mean so much. So I don't think I will ever not appreciate like having fresh air or sun on your face because that was just such a goal for me when I got home to be able to just sit outside, appreciate the ocean. And then I think this is one for all young people, which we have a better understanding of because what we do for work, but appreciating your health when you are well you know you just get in that wheel of just work 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 weekend work but don't appreciate that those times 
that you are perfectly well. You don't have a headache. You don't have yeah. pain anywhere in your body mm. and you just take it for granted because it's so, you're so used to it. You just get on with your day, but those days are actually so precious cool. and important. And so I don't think I'll ever appreciate a day where I don't. So it's hard, like I'm appreciating every day at the moment, but I still have that bit of pain, mm. but I am so much better than I was. I couldn't take, I couldn't stand like standing needed, you know, two people either side of me and some person holding all the lines coming out of my body. And then now I can walk down to the beach. I can get a foam surfboard at least out the back. Just yeah. your perspective changes, obviously. Mm. And I think it's hard because like people know you when you're on a shift. Normally it's the blonde curly hair, the brown skin. You know what I mean? You're on a shift in your green scrubs. And then almost I walked past you in recess to give a bit of context and I couldn't recognize you um pale not being rude but pale you know feeling like horrible rolling around on a ketamine infusion in agony um and so often we can say oh it's just pain related the ct is normal you know it's just pain related and then suddenly we you know down the track you're getting your bowel resected so i think it's always important not to judge our patients as well uh, and to give them you know it just made me think about that too um, i think yeah, and that's part of the reason I actually did go to our local hospital and not to one where I would know less people. Um, there's definitely a stigma for females with abdom young females with abdominal pain in emergency. 100%. I'm, I'm going to raise it. I'm like, you know, it's common. There's a massive stigma that, you know, it's period pain. It's, oh, they've all got digestive. They've all got IBS. Like, yep. Um, but I figured if I went to our local yeah. hospital yeah. and everyone knows me there and they have never seen me like that, nor and they would know that I would never come in unless there was something really wrong. 100%. So I knew that, the, that I'd be taken seriously and they would see that there's no way I'm faking or exaggerating. This isn't yeah. an exaggeration. This is how bad the pain is. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're on the mend because um, that's important. Uh, and I feel like you being well gives you a chance to help more people. And that's why you, I'm assuming one of the reasons you've done medicine is to help people, um, which is cool. Yeah. It's super interesting when you um, listen to Nikki talk about this sort of stuff because you realise that sometimes we do get common presentations. Sometimes we do get, you know, females in with abdominal pain, um, recurrent patients that come in and out, mental health patients that come in and out. We get used to them, used to their names and used to their presentations. However, we should never judge people or put them in a box. We should never just think just because it's a female with abdominal pain um, and we have no cause that we found on x-ray or bloods that suddenly this patient is, you know, seeking or su suddenly this patient has, you know, is unable to sort of cope with their pain. I think we've got to be really cautious when we tread this line to realize that not all patients fit into the box and sometimes we haven't found the diagnosis out yet um, this really shows us even how nikki felt comfortable to come to her local hospital that's awesome um, so just being we've got to be mindful as clinicians um, i'm sure there are patients that come to hospital for certain reasons we do know that patients can come to hospital because you know they know they want their specific treatment done um, however we've still got to be very mindful um, when we tread this line of putting patients into boxes um, and just even when we hand over sometimes you know other patients can hear us and we talk about things 
just to be mindful um, that our patients come possible because they want treatment and they want care and we're going to try and do the best we can possible. Um, so that's good. Um, other things I was thinking about, so treatment for a bowel obstruction, I know there's a couple of contagious ones. One of them out there is the nasogastric tube. Um, yeah. I've read a recent article about, you know, and I put up a post, you know, does it cause more harm than good? Yeah, good. I love, <laughs> love to stir the pot a little bit with surgeons. <laughs> <laughs> I know they're uncomfortable, um, but what are your thoughts on the old NG, Mark? What are your thoughts yeah. on um, for me, if you have a confirmed bowel obstruction, and usually if you have a confirmation, you usually would have uh, imaging and mm -hmm. some blood tests. Okay. Yeah. So if you've had a confirmed CT imaging, you'll be able to see how big your stomach is. Okay. You'll be able to see how distended your small bowel is. Now, that pressure will only go one way, where it, there's less pressure, which is vomiting. Yeah. And an NG is not really for, you know, for treatment. Well, you can always say that it's just for treatment, for therapeutic, mm -hmm. but it also is for comfort. Mm -hmm. I know it's very uncomfortable. No, none of my patients said that putting an NG is comfortable. <laughs> no yeah. one would always want anything put in their nose. No. Um, but uh, the, uh, you know, the, advantages of that it decreases that pressure mm. and if it decreases the pressure the nausea will will improve the vomiting would improve which decreases the risk of as well of this vomitus going to the lungs mm. so all of those um i mean yeah i would think outweighs any of the you know of the disadvantages which yeah. is pain um uh, on putting really yeah. uh, obviously you have some epistaxis when you put it but these are all very uh, small as compared to the advantages that you can get from a nas nasogastric tube insertion so for me uh, if you have a confirmed uh, small uh, bowel obstruction you always put it in cool. now I think I would be for me controversial is what if it's a large bowel obstruction yay now we're talking <laughs> now, so that's very controversial really do you put an ng to a patient who has a large bowel obstruction yeah. because as i said i i would because with a large bowel obstruction if you have a competent ileocecal valve yeah. uh, basically you would think if the patient comes in quite acutely the small bowel wouldn't be as distended because it's all you know within that large bowel. If if the endocecal valve is incompetent, then that back pressure will just come back, and then an isogastric tube will help. Mm. Now, if you have a competent endocecal valve, I'm not sure if an NG tube would actually help. Yeah, because the valve would be pressure coming yeah. yeah, but the thing with that now, you if you have a large bowel obstruction with a competent endocecal valve and a distal uh, obstruction, you're now faced with what we call a closed loop bowel obstruction because you have two points you have a bit of bowel that's that's where it's distended yes so that's one of those that we have to consider as an emergency and we need to do something okay. earlier, rather than you know obviously uh i know ng tube is part of the management but 
on top of this NG tube. Resuscitating the patient is very yeah. important. Yeah. Very important. Uh, you know, electrolytes, that's why we always ask for electrolytes, the lactate. Um, lactate is just for looking for um, any issues with the blood supply to the bowel. Yeah. Is there anything that's dead? So that's very important. And mm. the other question is uh, the IDC. Do we always put an IDC? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it's, you know, it's a case-to-case basis. I yeah. would really always would like to put an IDC because if you have a patient who has been vomiting for a while and on the bloods, if there is some electrolyte imbalances and an AKI, you need to. Yep. So those are the things, but, you know. Yeah, it's good. Uh, understandably patients who are quite awake and corpus mentis would always say, no, you can always just offer them and okay. give them your hand or bottles. Yeah. And just as yeah. long as it's documented, you want a strict flow balance for That's fluid right. losses. So I guess- That's um, very important actually. Um, I, I always wanted to get to give a talk to the nurses up in the ward about fluid balance and yes. fluid balance charting. Um, sometimes I just feel that we need to reiterate the very important task of actually making sure that the patient has their fluid balance uh, done properly. Um, It's very important. It's not just because we wanted to know it. It's us to actually know if we're resuscitating the patient uh, to the best uh, of the patient's um, uh, physiology, basically. I agree. I agree. So I guess the patient comes in, you know, we're putting, we generally put a decent sized cannula in, we take some bloods off, FBCs, EUCs. You said you wanted a VBG for lactate level. Yep. CRP, yep. I love a CRP. You a CRP lover? Yeah, no, in, in a bubble obstruction, not really. Okay. <laughs> it's nothing. Uh, a white cell for an acute process is actually better for me. Yep. Uh, obviously, if you know if this has been happening for at least three, four days, then a CRP probably cool. would be okay. LFTs. Yeah. Um, LFTs. Depending on, no. depending on yeah, depending on what you're thinking, really. Yeah. Uh, obviously, coagulation uh, profile. If the patient is on any anticoagulants, you need okay. to know about it. Uh, electrolyte CMP yeah. uh, is the most important. Uh, what one of the most important things because we need to replace that if we need to. Um, How old if you? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, and f- we talked about so fluids. Uh, you talked about getting a CT. Who and obviously a good for a gas because we can see renal impairment if we're going to do a, a, a CT. CT. Yeah, because at the moment uh, in this day and age, especially in Australia, CT scan is very much uh, uh, we use uh, very much used uh, in uh, diagnosing a, any kind of abdominal pain. Really, <laughs> at this point, especially at night, it's the most you know it's uh, it's something that we can use. Uh, very easily and accessible. That's the yeah. word. It's very accessible. And which way, this is a silly question, but for patients that get a CT, which ones do we decide on getting a CT with contrast, without contrast, or oral contrast and IV contrast? Is that related just to kidney function? It's more of, uh, okay, um, with the IV contrast, it's more related to the kidney function. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, so that's why if they can't have it, we just want an oral. Oral is just to make, you know, just to be able to find out if this oral contrast actually goes anywhere yeah. after the obstruction or actually just outlines the bowel. Yeah. Uh, that's very important. Um, and it just makes it easier for yeah, us to see. see where this uh, obstruction is. Awesome. Um, 
That's really interesting. Where's the Where's the weirdest place you've found an NG tube? Like someone, spot? yeah, weirdest spot that you've gone uh, looking at the scan, or you've gone to see the patient and it's not in the right spot. <laughs> um, well, always I always find it in the pharynx. Yes, yeah. curled around always. Uh, that's the most common where it goes. Uh, back in the Philippines, I saw it in the right bronchus. Wow. Uh, yeah, and here I guess the the someone I've seen one that actually goes down to the duodenum. Well, like, I don't know how they were able to, you know, able, but yeah, it just went down so so low. Uh, it looked like it was in the duodenum. <laughs> what are you looking for when you're looking at a CT scan? It's not reported. Do you look at them yourself? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, we look at it ourselves. Of uh, we try to find out what's the cause of this patient's abdomen. Well, it's basically just confirming of what we think. Um, obviously, if you put an NG before the scan, if it you know it's draining a lot of uh, enteric fluid, that's a bowel obstruction until proven yes. otherwise. Really, yes. clinically, I mean that's how we used to do it back in the Philippines. <laughs> we, yeah, because we don't have uh, we don't have by then uh, we don't usually use the CT. Yeah. Um, so, um, uh, so oh, with the NG, uh, it's always good to put a big bore. Yeah, like okay. Yeah, that's that's a 14 gauge, you know, uh, you know, at, at least at least a 16 above would be good. Um, yeah. So with the CT, what you look at are distended loops of bowel. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to make sure what you're looking at is a small bowel. Mm -hmm. Consider it a small or a large bowel. So anything distension, are they fluid filled? They always air fluid levels are those mm -hmm. that we look at. And obviously we have a look if we can see where the transition point is. Transition point is what where this blockage is happening basically okay. um so things to look at you know from being a distended part of the bowel then it becomes quite collapsed yeah so tentatively you think okay probably that's where the transition well that's where the transition point is and with the ct as what we always know it's very good looking intra-abdominally yeah so with all this you know is it in a luminal problem is it in the bowel in the wall or is it outside we'll be able to know that as well yeah um the uh, the one that i said earlier about the gallstone i saw that on, on the, the ct okay yeah so it was like a very big calcified uh stone in the small bowel and i said was like thinking oh all right <laughs> it was all distended proximally to that and then this study it was just all you know uh collapse i had yeah first time i've seen that i had to call the person hmm, i don't know what it is but this is what i saw it's like, yeah. okay and uh yeah so those are the things that you look for uh yeah. in the ct and the good thing with the ct as well it can um it can actually tell you if um uh, not not that it can tell you obviously it's all with the history and everything but yeah. uh, if there's any mesenteric stranding okay around where this uh transition point is so mesenteric stranding is like fluffiness around this bowel um do you think that this is an inflammation an inflammatory process that's causing the obstruction yep. which now goes you have to now look at your differential is the diverticulitis those sort of things diverticulitis or uh, mostly first thing that i would think would be is it an inflammatory bowel disease a okay. disease yes okay so also one of those that can cause a bowel obstruction okay Interesting. Because if that's the case, you have to speak with your gastro colleagues as well to help you with these patients' uh, management.
Yeah, and then obviously um, antibiotics. No, uh, not really. Yeah, no. uh, with, with, the, with the simple bowel obstruction, you don't really give antibiotics. Uh, um, you only give antibiotics if one, you have, symptom, you have signs of peritonitis yep, okay. or sepsis. So those are the only time, but you don't really give antibiotics. At the end of this, at the center of this is your patient. Mm. You know, you have to give uh, a diagnosis and a management to your patient as soon or as quick as you can. Mm. Uh, so I think that's that's just how I look at it. Mm. Uh, why I knew I wanted to be a surgeon with a scalpel in my hand is yeah. when at two or three o'clock in the morning I'm operating. That's the most I'm awake at. Really? Yeah. <laughs> uh, two or three o'clock in the morning doing a laparotomy. I'm awake. You're uh, you love it. Yeah, that's it. I just love it. Uh, it's not that I love operating at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, you know, right. but that's when I actually know that uh, I, I want to be a surgeon. Wow. You know, uh, that procedure and you're there and the always the planning that the end point is you're actually getting rid of the problem that the patient came in with. Yeah. So that's one of the things that I love as a surgeon. Mm. Um, obviously, that's not always the case. Um, mm. But we we get there uh, <laughs> with, uh, with the help of the other teams afterwards, you know. Um, mm. But having that, it's very exciting. Yeah. Especially and frightening at the same time. Yeah. With that thinking at the back of your hand, that head that, you know, uh, there is that responsibility that you have for your patient uh, mm -hmm. that you have to do it right. And, and hopefully that operation that you're going to do to them is their first and last. Yeah. <laughs> it's what we, uh, we always say. But what would you say to people that are really out there that want, that want to do surgery? Yeah. Well, there's, there will be, uh, there will be a lot of hurdles. There will be a lot of, you know, uh, things that will you would always think oh, I can be always I can do something else. Mm. But if you really love what you're doing, and um, this is and yeah, you just have to do it. Just mm. go go for it. Go for it. Uh, you have your sight set on this one uh, specialty. Um, if something a bump in the road goes on your way, you just have to go back to that initial. Um, uh, what's this fire that you had? Why yeah. did I want to do this? Yeah. Why did you know? Why am I doing this? Uh, because, as as you know, I, uh, I I've been doing this for quite a long time. But to be honest, uh, Ben, I can't see myself doing anything else. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, uh, just yeah, j just the surgery, uh, the the mix of bedside manners, talking yes. to patients, yeah. and then the procedure. That's that's, yeah. that's where I want to be. You're an absolute um, amazing human. So I've loved chatting with you, mate. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, I love this, mate. Um, yeah, um, I hope I gave you something for your bowel obstruction. Um, <laughs> uh, we'll probably do something else uh, in the near future again. You! Well, I don't know if you'll put this in, but you should put this in. Hmm. But for those that don't know Benny, I've known him since I was an intern when I first started out in ED. And he made everything, every shift good, doesn't make you feel stupid. Everyone loves when you're on, know you're going to have a good day. 
and then when I am at like my absolute worst, completely sick, can't see any family members, you're coming up and saying, hey, and checking in every day and sending me messages. Um, so put this in the podcast. <laughs> I can edit it. I can... <laughs> I listen to your podcast, you like rave on about how good everyone else is. And I'm like, Benny's the best. Talk about yourself. Mm, I'm going to go red now. Gee. My head, I want to be able to fit out the door, dude. This head's already big enough. <laughs> <laughs> you can also follow me, um, edgm underscore podcast on Instagram as well. Um, and thank you to everyone who does listen. Remember that any advice on the EDGM should be taken over your local medical practitioner. Um, thank you, everybody, and have a good day. Bye.